Well, church, once again, it is fantastic to see you guys. I don't know if you got the memo tomorrow. It's kind of a big day, right? Uh, I hope you got your, all your Christmas shopping finished. Uh, anybody else go online today and figure out, like, what time Target was closing tonight or anything like that? Uh, it's 10 o'clock, in case some of you are wondering. I hope you've kind of finished that thing up. Uh, this is always the time of year. I, I, love, I love the whole gift exchange thing. I think I've told you this before, but I actually love giving gifts. Uh, I, I really enjoy it quite a lot. I don't know if it's uh, anybody else with me. You kind of like, I, I, everybody loves receiving gifts. We all like that part, but I, I think maybe it's the Enneagram 7 in me or something like that, but, or maybe it's just you kind of go on YouTube and, you know, you watch all the videos of everybody kind of, of all the exclamations and all the kids freaking out about the gifts that they get, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Anybody else go on YouTube and you see those videos? Get a little snapshot of kind of what we're talking about here. Um, I, 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 I think that Right? Isn't that it? Like, parents, isn't that kind of the, the hope and dream? You're like, okay, this is the Christmas that I'm going to nail every gift that I get, and, and this is exactly what my kid, okay, we can remove that one and stuff there, otherwise we're going to be uh, all on Buddy the Elf. But, like, that's what, we, that's what we imagine, right? This is the Christmas, I'm going to nail the gift, I'm going to get it perfectly right, and that is going to be a response to my loved ones this year. Um, a few years back, I think we actually nailed it. We got pretty, really, we got pretty close with it. Uh, my son was about two years old at the time, and and if you follow me on Instagram, he went through this, uh, this, this really hilarious uh, phase of being obsessed with vacuum cleaners. I don't know how to explain it, except like, he was just absolutely loved that. Any other kids, uh, parents, you're like, yes, my kid went through that cleaning stage. The, uh, he loved vacuum cleaners. And so we got there on Christmas Eve, and I, I found this toy Dyson vacuum cleaner uh, that was the, greatest, it was the greatest thing in the world. And, uh, and we made them, and so th that Christmas Eve night, we got done with the service, and we go back home, and we decided to surprise him with an early, and I'm not kidding, I've never seen such explosion of joy on a child's face before, but he opens up that gift, and that's just a little Dyson vacuum cleaner, and that kid, like, the rest of the night is going around, like, trying to, like, clean every little inch of the house, a little two-year-old, just absolutely went nuts. Now, like, the problem that we had with that is we did it on a Christmas Eve night, okay? If you're rookie parents, don't do that. Right, that's the time they're tr you're trying to get him to go to sleep, and it didn't really work out that way. He's just jacked up with excitement and, and, and hyperness and stuff the rest of the night. And he was so pumped up, he tried to bring the vacuum cleaner and go sleep with it at night. And, you know, you, uh, some kids try to sleep with a stuffed animal or something like that, and he's trying to go with a, a vacuum cleaner. But that's just the little phase that we were in at that point in time. And, you know, if, only, if it were only that easy every single year, right? Like, if, if joy were... We're always that easy every single year. Like, I, mean, I mean, sometimes in some years, I mean, the, Di the Dyson vacuum cleaner is all that it takes to bring about ecstatic joy in somebody else. And other people, you're going to look at a Dyson vacuum cleaner and you're going to kind of be like, all right, that's just a silly little toy. And for some people, you're going to kind of get around the Christmas tree and you're going to open up gifts. And for some people, it may be all about a PlayStation or something like that. And other people are going to kind of look at that and be like, okay, well, that's just other people are the cat or something like that. And like for some people, when we get around this Christmas season, you know, Christmas is the holiday that's everything. Christmas is the thing that just lets you erupt in joy, right? Like for some people, when you think about the birth of Jesus Christ, like it just makes you erupt in joy and it makes you fall on your knees in absolute worship. And then for others of us, it's just not so much the exact same thing. And don't get me wrong, like we love the holiday season and we love the excitement of it and we love the gift giving and the lights and the family even to some degree or another, but... For some of us, you know, just the joy and the worship of the whole thing just isn't really part of our experience. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to be singing this song that's easily one of my favorite songs that we sing at Christmas time, and it's just simply called Oh Holy Night. It was a song that was written about 175 years ago, and it's written from the perspective of a first century Jew who is longing for the arrival 
of the Messiah. And they're crying out and they're longing for the birth of their Savior. And together in just a little bit, we're going to be singing out these words. uh, And we're going to be acknowledging that tonight is not like any other night. That it's actually a holy night. That it's completely different from any other night that you and I experience. Because it's a holy night. Because it's the night that our dear Savior was born. And in a few minutes, we're going to be singing these words that say, you know, long lay the world in sin and error pining. And we're going to sing some of these words, and some of us are going to be gravitating to them quite a bit because you're going to be sitting there kind of going, you know, I, like, I know the sting of sin. I, I know the heaviness of sin and a world of error that's been pining for centuries and centuries and centuries. I know what it is to lose someone that I love. And I know the sting of someone walking away and being stabbed in the back. And I know the sting of sickness and disease. And something about the Christmas season has a way of bringing this back to the forefront of our attentions. And some of us are going to be gravitating to some of these words uh, very, very much because you know what those things are. And this song is going to remind us that, that the reason that it's a holy night is because, is because Christ has come to undo everything that sin has destroyed. I mean, Genesis is going to describe it kind of like this. He's going to say this, when sin entered into the world, that everything that was created by God and declared good, it absolutely broke and was completely destroyed. You know, in Genesis 3, 7, it's going to say, after Eve had eaten the fruit that day and she gave into the temptation and, and walked into sin, it's going to say that their eyes were both opened up and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. In other words, for the very first time in their life, as soon as sin entered into the world, they knew what it was like to taste and feel and experience shame. In verse 8, they're going to hear the footsteps of God walking around in that garden. And their first inclination is going to be to, is going to, be to hide from, from the Father. They're going to try to hide from him, which is exactly what shame does. And it never really works out, but that's what shame does to us. It makes you want to hide and makes you want to flee from holy things. and makes you want to just cower in the middle of your sin. And nevertheless, it's exactly what they try to do. In verse 16, we're going to come to find out uh, not long after that, that it's not just shame that was entering into the world at that time, but they ushered in an entire lifetime of pain and death and suffering for the rest of humanity at that time. In verse 16, God's going to describe just a little bit of what's about to take place as a result of this breaking of humanity that came in at that time. He's going to say, I'm going to make your pains in childbearing very severe, he says to the woman. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. Your desire is going to be for your husband, and he's going to rule over you. And then Adam, he turns and he says, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. And what we're seeing here at the very beginning is nothing short of just massive, massive destruction as the fabric of of the world just breaks in half as sin enters in. I mean, a few chapters later, God's going to come to Noah, and he's going to tell him to build an entire massive ark for he and his family and for, every, uh, for two of every animal on the planet. Because whenever God is looking at the world, all he can see was the destruction of sin. And in chapter 6, verse 5, he's going to say that he's looking out at the fabric of humanity, and he sees that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. I mean, church, can you imagine what such a world would have been like at that time? I mean, there in the, in the garden, in the beginning, God created everything good. And a few chapters later, there's this ark and there's this stuff. Because everywhere he's looking, all he can see is evil everywhere all the time. I mean, we can't even imagine what such a world may be like where you're looking out in every inclination of every human heart. Where Noah and his family were the only people who were seeking after God. And he's looking around and he's saying every inclination of every human heart was only evil all the time. 
And it, of course, we know that from the story of Scripture, like it doesn't just stop right there. A little bit after that, an entire nation of Israel is going to be enslaved at the hands of the Egyptians, and they're going to stay enslaved for the next 400 years. A generation is going to come and go, and they're never going to be able to taste freedom whatsoever. And then a little while after that, nearly a thousand years after that, uh, the, the, the cycle is going to keep going on and on and on. The Assyrians are going to come, and they're going to take captive the northern kingdom of Israel, and they're going to be also taken into captivity and also be homeless. About a hundred years after that, it's going to be the Babylonians that are going to come, and they're going to invade the southern kingdom of Judah, and they're going to do the exact same thing. And church, here it is, like none of what we're going to see in the story of Scripture all throughout the Old Testament is how it was designed to be. None of it was how it was ever intended to be. From there in the very beginning, God created all that is, and he said that it was good. He, he looked at humanity and he created humanity in the image of God and said that it was very good. In other words, from the very beginning, like there was no conflict between husband and wife. In the very beginning, there was no conflict with the rest of creation. In the very beginning, there was no conflict between God and man. We were supposed to be co-equal image bearers of God. And now we're looking around and we're talking about abuse and assault and a divorce rate somewhere around 50%. And that was never how it was intended to be. In the very beginning, it was supposed to be nothing but blessing and bliss. And now we're looking around and we're talking about a world that's surrounded by pain. In the very beginning, it was supposed to be nothing but peace and rest. And now we're talking about being separated from God and fear and anxiety and things like cancer and sickness and dementia and miscarriage and racism and tension and divisions and a Me Too movement and hypocrisy and addiction and wandering children and political corruption. All because what happened there was that in the very beginning, holy cannot mix with the unholy. That's what's taking place as is the, is the fabric of the world is broken in half like holy cannot mix with unholy. And we've talked about this a number of times before. The way that I've explained it to the church is it's kind of like drinking water from a, uh, from a, from a it's kind of like drinking sneeze water from a child, right? I've, I've shared this with you before. Like Caleb did this a number, a, a number of years ago. We were having dinner one evening and we're sitting at the table and he gets kind of sick and he all of a sudden just sneezes all over my glass. Right, and he gets really, really embarrassed by the whole thing, and he's looking at my glass, and he feels terrible that he just sneezed. And we're not talking about, you know, the kind that you hold back a little bit, and, and, and you kind of hold in it. Most, most of it's contained. We're talking about little two-year-old sneeze that, you know, you can see, and it shows up on a map or something like that. And I, I, he, he feels terrible about it, and he takes my glass, and he tries to take his little, his little grubby little hands and tries to, like, wipe it on top of the glass and stuff. And I'm like, going, I'm like going, buddy, like, I'm not drinking that water. We're not, we're not doing that today, right? Like, there's nothing you could do. I don't, care. I don't care how much you try to clean that glass. I'm not drinking that water anymore. I, I don't care if that water is 99% sneeze or just 50% sneeze or just 2% sneeze. There's nothing you can do to make me drink that water. Like, it's the exact same thing. Church purity can't mix with impurity. And in the exact same way, holy can have absolutely nothing to do with holy. And church, the problem of the matter is that, that there's nothing that you and I can do to fix that situation, Right? He felt terrible about the thing, and he tries to take that glass of water, and he sticks his little two-year-old hands inside the water and tries to scoop out, like, what's inside that water. I'm going, buddy, that doesn't even work. Like, I appreciate the intention, and I appreciate what you're trying to do there, but there's nothing that you can do to, to fix that problem. What I need is a brand-new glass of water here, and it's exactly what God has set out to do for us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection, which we are celebrating here this evening. I mean, church, in the middle of all that fallout right there in the Garden of Eden, when the fabric of humanity was broken in two, like immediately we're beginning to see the plan of God for redemption begin to come to fruition right then and there. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, God's going to make a promise that one day, still future, there's going to be one who's going to come and undo everything that sin destroyed. Right there, as soon as sin enters the picture, God is moving and he's unveiling his plan of redemption. He's speaking to Satan and he says this. He says, Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and this woman over here and between your offspring and hers. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about this great spiritual battle that's going to take place in the cosmos later on at a much later date. And he's going to say at some point in time, I'm going to send an offspring of Eve. And he, meaning Jesus at some point in the future, is going to come and he's going to crush your head, Satan, and you're going to strike his heel. In other words, right there in the very beginning, as soon as sin enters into the picture, God is unleashing his plan of redemption. And he's saying, yes, Satan, you're going to have a few wins, but in the end, Jesus is going to have the final victory. You may be able to strike his heel, but he's going to absolutely crush and destroy you. Church, that was the plan from the very beginning. That was a plan. As soon as sin entered into the picture, the world started groaning for this Messiah uh, who would come and undo everything sin destroyed. So years later, Paul's going to say this in, in Romans chapter 5. Paul's going to compare Adam to Jesus in order to show that in every possible way, the arrival of Jesus into the scene is the solution to the problem of sin, which Adam brought in. So he's going to say things like, like Adam, Jesus was also a human being. And like Adam, uh, Jesus was also the first of his kind. He was fully God and he was fully man. And in the same way that Adam was also tempted by Satan, uh, Jesus was also tempted by Satan. But here's the difference. Unlike Adam, Jesus was fully divine. And unlike Adam, Jesus was tempted, but he never actually gave an assent. So unlike Adam, when Jesus died upon the cross, his death wasn't a punishment for his own sin. His death was a substitute for the sin of humanity through which you and I may be redeemed. So here it is, church, like when Jesus was hanging upon the cross and he was absorbing the worst of Satan's sting, what no one else could see is that at the exact same time, uh, he was crushing Satan's head and he was beginning to undo everything that sin destroyed. So when Adam ate from the tree of the garden of, of of the tree of life and death and he brought in death into this world, Jesus died upon the tree and three days later he ushered in life. In Genesis 3.21, God made a covering for Adam's nakedness and shame from the dead skin of a lamb. And here on the cross, hanging naked and ashamed, Jesus became the sacrificial lamb of God, whose innocence and blood now clothed us in his righteousness. Paul's going to say in Romans 5.18, just as one sin resulted in the condemnation of all people, so also one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. In other words, church, like in the exact same way that Adam's sin brought in death and destruction for all, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection brought justification and life to any and all who would simply come to him in genuine faith. Church, everything sin destroyed, Jesus came to make right. That's what he's doing, and his plan was inaugurated there in the garden, and it came to fruition there in in the birth and the arrival of Jesus Christ. Sin brought in sickness and a disease, but Jesus comes and he says, you want to know who I am, church? Like, go back and tell John everything that you hear and see. Blind receive sight. The lame actually walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Church, sin brought in domination into the home. But in Christ, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Wives to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. That's the model that's been given to us. It's husbands and wives giving fully of themselves to one another. Sin brought favoritism and racism into this world. But in Galatians 3.28, it's going to say there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you're all one in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin brought in poverty and oppression. But Jesus is going to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
And truly, I say to you, to the extent that you've cared for the, even the least of these, you've done it unto me. Sin's going to bring in crying and sadness and death and pain. But in Hebrews, we're going to find out that Jesus became the better high priest who's able to sympathize with your pain and weakness since he himself was also tempted with those things and still did not sin. And sin brought shame and condemnation. But Paul's going to say that in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has now set us free from the law of sin and death. Church, that is why tonight is a holy night. It's why some of us are going to get on our knees and at some point in time, we're going to actually just, just erupt in, in ecstatic joy and we're going to worship. It's why we celebrate and we sing because in the middle of that place, everything sin destroyed and Jesus came to make right. And here's the beauty of it, church. Right? The word of God says that he's still not done. In Revelation 21, uh, we're going to find out that Jesus is going to come back again to finish what he started nearly 2,000 years ago. And Revelation is going to describe it as a day when there's going to be no more sin, no more sadness, no more death, and no more pain. There's going to be a total and complete victory in that day. Because the old things will have passed away. Behold, new things will have been brought in. So church, here it is. Tonight, when this is all said and done, I'm probably going to go back home with the family and have an incredible Christmas Eve meal like normal. Every single Christmas we do the same thing. We're probably going to go and we're probably going to open up a few gifts and Probably going to be excited about a few things that we're going to open up. Hopefully Caleb, Caleb's going to be ecstatic about a few of these things. We're going to go to sleep and we're going to get up real early in the morning. We're going to do a little bit more of it again. And then we're going to get in a car and we're going to drive to Houston to go be with the family. All the brothers and sisters and everybody's going to be there. We're probably going to do a, do a little bit more of the gift exchange that day. We may go see a few Christmas lights. We're going to go eat a good steak dinner. We're going to enjoy each other's fellowship and we're going to have a ton of fun that day. But here it is, church, in the middle of all that, it would be an absolute shame if we went and we did all those different things and we completely missed the holiness of this day. Church, my hope is for all of us that at some point in time, maybe it's this afternoon, maybe it's tomorrow, that you and your family would pause and that you would reflect and that you would savor the beauty of Christ's birth, the fact that God in his infinite love sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to condescend from heaven and to take on flesh. And to come and do for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. Church, may this not be a Christmas where we miss the point of what he came to do.